A warm welcome to First Move. I'm Zane Asher into my colleague Julia Chatterley. Just ahead on today's show, Summit Countdown. U.S. President Biden set to land in New Delhi this hour for this weekend's G20 meetings. Biden, a G20 participant, but Russia's Putin and China Xi will both be no-shows this time. We'll discuss what exactly can be achieved at this summit and why it's such an important showcase for India and for Prime Minister Narendra Modi. Plus, car countdown. The big three U.S. automakers and the United Auto Workers are still far apart on a new contract with less than one week to go before a potentially crippling strike. We'll discuss the impact a walkout would have on the U.S. economy just ahead. The countdown to Wall Street trading day is on as well. A losing week so far, but a flat open on tap for the major averages. European stocks currently trading mixed. Uh, let's hone in on Apple shares. They're set for a mostly higher open after a horrible week for its shareholders. The stock has actually been tumbling on reports that workers in the Chinese government and state-run organizations will be banned from using iPhones. All this ahead of a new iPhone product launch for Apple next week. Meantime, it was a weak Friday session in Asia. The Hong Kong exchange closed today amid... Uh, the chaos caused by flash flooding in the city. Details on that later on in the show. But first, U.S. President Joe Biden expected to arrive in India very soon ahead of the G20 summit this weekend. Shortly after landing in New Delhi, he's going to be meeting with the Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi. China's Xi Jinping and Russia's Vladimir Putin are not attending this year's summit. Let's bring in Jeremy Diamond, who is live for us in New Delhi. So how much will Biden's presence there sort of fill the void left by China Xi and uh, Russia, Russia's Putin? Well, listen, Zane, uh, President Biden has said that he's disappointed that Xi Jinping will not be here. And the president's national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, says that those two leaders not being here, in particular the Chinese president, doesn't necessarily change Biden's pitch uh, to uh, world leaders here at the G20. But privately, U.S. officials very much acknowledging that uh, Xi Jinping not being here certainly leaves an opening for President Biden to more forcefully deliver the message that he intended to deliver here. And that is that the United States is uh, the most reliable, the best partner for the developing world uh, going forward. And President Biden is coming to this G20 in India armed uh, with uh, key deliverables uh, targeted for that pitch. And that is that the president is coming here talking about reforming some of the multilateral uh, development banks, including the World Bank, uh, and also coming armed with proposals to increase funding for the World Bank by billions of uh, dollars. And uh, that would be $25 billion of additional additional funding uh, proposed by the U.S., bringing it to $100 billion if other countries come on board, which is something that U.S. officials do indeed expect. Uh, but there's no question that this will be a divided G20 as well, regardless of whether Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin are here. Their representatives will be, and they will be objecting uh, to key parts of a joint communique that leaders are trying to get here, in particular as the U.S. looks uh, to continue to condemn Russia over its invasion of Ukraine. Last year at the G20, uh, these leaders uh, agreed to a joint declaration, a leader's declaration that pointed out the differences among the leaders 
as it relates to the war in Ukraine. We will see if this time they are able to get together that joint communique, but it seems that if they do, it will be unlikely to voice strong condemnation of Russia's actions in Ukraine, no less because India is hosting this summit, and the Indian government has refused to sign on to some of the sanctions, uh, and they have also refused to condemn Russia explicitly for their invasion of Ukraine. There are also a host of bilateral issues to be worked out. This visit comes just a couple of months after... Uh, Prime Minister Narendra Modi visited the White House. Uh, there were some key security and trade agreements that we expect to be expanded upon today as President Biden and the Indian Prime Minister sit down. But one last note saying there will be no press in the room as those two leaders meet just a few hours from now. That's a result of a decision by the Indian government. Top U.S. Uh, officials telling us that they did try. They tried to press the Indians to allow press into this room, uh, but the absence will indeed highlight India's issues with press freedom ranked as one of the worst countries as it relates to issues of press freedom in the world. Zane? Right. Prime Minister Narendra Modi rarely answers questions from reporters. Uh, Jeremy Diamond, live for us there. Thank you so much. While the leader of the world's second largest economy skips the G20, tensions remain high between China and the United States. In particular, uh, the conflict over tech and chips. Concern is mounting about the tech inside phones made by China's Huawei. And this week, Apple lost $200 billion of its market value in just two days amid reports of an iPhone ban for China's government officials. Anna Stewart is live for us in London. So here you have Apple, the world's most valuable company, essentially limited in terms of how much business it can do in the world's second largest economy. Investors look at this, Anna, and they think what? It's not been a great week for Apple, I have to say. Yeah. I think we have a share price of their performance from the week. Uh, share price was down 4% on Wednesday, 3% yesterday. As you said, that's $200 billion wiped off its valuation. And all on these reports about a limitation on its uh, iPhone being used in China, uh, at a, a market that accounts for about a fifth of its revenue last year. So this kicked off on Wednesday with the Wall Street Journal reporting that government officials would be banned from using iPhones. Then we had Bloomberg and some other outlets saying that would be extended to also include uh, employees of state-backed firms. If true, that would be tens of millions of people, potentially. We have had a statement, though, from China. A spokesperson from China's Ministry of Foreign Affairs uh, essentially said that foreign companies are welcome in China as long as they obey uh, the rules and regulations and added this line. China's approach is fundamentally different from some individual countries who abuse the so-called security concepts to suppress and contain Chinese enterprises. Of course, the U.S. has banned Huawei since 2019 in terms of communications devices. So I suggest that there is some messaging there and the timing of all this saying. So as you mentioned, Huawei launched this week uh, to great panic, I think, in the US. Its latest phone, the, uh, the Mate 60 Pro, you're seeing it there, has a very high tech, apparently Chinese made chip in it. Uh, and this all ahead of next week when Apple is expected to launch the latest iPhone 15. All right. The timing, as you point out, certainly suspect. Um, <laughs> and I do want to talk about Norway. Norway has one of the biggest sovereign wealth funds uh, in the world. And there are reports that they're going to be shutting their Shanghai office in a pivot to, to Singapore, which is interesting. Just mm. walk us through that. So this is an interesting move from them. So moving out of their Shanghai office, where they've been, I think, since 2007, ever since they were granted a license to trade in onshore Chinese stock exchanges. And this pullback from, you know, the biggest... Uh, investor really in equity markets around the world it has 1.4 trillion dollars in assets 
is big news. It follows something of a trend. So many banks and financial services firms have pulled back or scaled back their expansion plans in China over recent years for a number of reasons. Firstly, there's, of course, politics. It's becoming increasingly unpredictable in China for business. The anti-espionage law earlier this year, the broadening of that definitely scared quite a few firms. And then you've got the economic backdrop in China and the fact that it's becoming less and less attractive for foreign investment. Zane. Right, Anna Stewart, life for us there. Thank you. A major new development in Spain's ongoing women's football scandal. The national prosecutor has just filed a complaint against Luis Rubiales, the suspended president of the country's football federation, on the grounds of sexual assault and coercion. It stems from the now infamous incident last month when Rubiales kissed star player Jenny Hermoso on the lips after her team's victory in the World Cup final. Hermoso says that she did not consent to being kissed anyway whatsoever. Uh, the complaint could open the way to charges against Rubiales, who has rejected all calls to resign. Amanda Davis is here with more. Amanda, what more can you tell us here? Hi, Zane. Yeah, what we know is that this is another step in a process of, from the Spanish legal uh, structures that has been ongoing now for nearly three weeks since that incident, as you mentioned, that took place in Sydney on August the 20th. It is a step that, yes, is called a complaint, but what it has done is it has opened the way for the Spanish prosecutors to begin to gather evidence to build a case which could lead to criminal charges. And what this announcement has done today is it has named the charges and the crime that will be investigated. As you mentioned, it is for sexual assault and coercion. And it follows testimony that Jenny Hermoso, the player, gave earlier this week with her lawyer president. There's been some interesting added information that has come from the statement that has been issued today, uh, saying from the prosecutor's office, Jenny Hermoso also referred in her statement that both she and people close to her suffered constant and repeated pressure from Luis Rubiales and his professional environment. So interestingly, perhaps we are now talking about a broader scope than just the incident that took place on August the 20th and perhaps refers more to the letter that those 15 players, last 15 as they became known, wrote to the Spanish football authorities complaining about the management structures and the processes in place as they represented their national team. Of course, all of that going on in the background as Spain went on to win that historic first ever Women's World Cup. Luis Rubiales, for his part, we know was already being suspended by world football's governing body FIFA for a, an initial period of 90 days. But up to this point, he has remained defiant. He has refused to step down from his post as president of the Spanish Football Federation, despite growing pressure on him to do so. As well as the criminal case here, though, this might then open the way for the Spanish sporting tribunals and bodies to take more of a stance. They looked into charges of misconduct last week. They said they decided that it could be only described as a serious offence rather than a very serious offence, which is the bar by which they are able to take action. So you wonder 
at what point in these legal processes that would give the, the sporting tribunals more grounds to take action of their own. Yeah, we, we await some kind of reaction from Rubiales on the possibility that he may indeed face criminal charges. We will be watching closely. Amanda Davis, live for us there. Thank you so much. All right, more now on the American trapped inside one of Turkey's deepest caves. 40-year-old Mark Dickey fell ill while he was about 1,100 meters below the surface with gastrointestinal bleeding. Turkish officials say the operation to bring Dickey out could begin tomorrow and that it would take approximately four days. Nada Bashir joins us live now. So, Nada, here you have a man who is about 1,000 meters below ground. The sort of operation to bring him to the surface would be a complicated one, even for a healthy person. And when you add to the fact that he may need a stretcher, uh, just walk us through how much that does indeed complicate things here. Yeah, absolutely, Ryan. Zara this is a deeply complex operation. We're talking about a mission that could take days, several multinational teams involved in this rescue effort. And as you mentioned there, uh, this is an individual who isn't in the best state when it comes to health. Of course, there are concerns around the pressure put around the stomach area. That is where he suffered that injury earlier this week. So that is a key area of concern. That is something that the teams on the ground are considering before they make the decision whether or not to begin that rescue effort tomorrow. Now, of course, we are talking about a deep area, winding, narrow passageway. So that will be a complex logistical mission. But we've heard, of course, from Mark Dickey in a message released yesterday. Uh, Take a look at where he is right now. He is uh, seemingly in a better condition, but of course, there are still several obstacles ahead for him. In the dark and cavernous depths of Turkey's Morka sinkhole, a welcome update. Mark Dickey from nearly a thousand meters. American caver Mark Dickey now said to be in a stable condition after falling ill some three and a half thousand feet below ground almost a week ago. As you can see, I'm up, I'm alert, I'm talking, uh, but I'm not healed on the inside yet, so I'm going to need a lot of help to get out of here. Rescuers say Dickey suffered gastrointestinal bleeding during his research expedition and required urgent medical attention at base camp. According to officials, six units of blood had to be delivered to him. It's an operation which has drawn about 150 rescuers from across the globe to Turkey's third deepest cave. The Turkish Caving Federation says it typically takes a full 15 hours for an experienced caver to reach the surface in ideal conditions. But Dickey's health is still in a delicate state, and the narrow, winding passages of the cave, as well as frigid temperatures, could pose a major challenge to rescuers. The team on the ground is very happy that Mark's condition seems to be improving so that it looks like that he will not have to be in a litter the entire way out, but there may be portions of the cave that he has to be in that litter. So the more he can help, the faster the rescue can go. But even with him helping, we're anticipating that it will take days to get him out of the cave. For now, Turkey's Disaster and Emergency Authority says the operation is running smoothly. And though this is a huge logistical undertaking, there is cautious optimism for Dickie's safe return.
hopes that that rescue effort will begin tomorrow, but a further assessment will need to be undertaken to assess Dickie's health. But we're talking about a truly multinational effort here. We have teams from Turkey, Hungary, Poland, Italy, Croatia and Bulgaria on the ground as part of this effort, including some 32 individuals who are in this cave at the moment supporting that effort. Now, preparations are being made, but as I said, this is a process that could take days. Same. Right. Nada Bashir, live for us there. Thank you so much. OK, still to come here on First Move, a new list is out naming the cream of the crop in the world of artificial intelligence. We'll discuss with the Times editor-in-chief after the break. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back to First Move. AI has been the buzzword for 2023, from education to big tech giants developing new programs. Artificial intelligence is pretty much just about everywhere. Now, Time magazine has revealed its inaugural Time 100 AI list, highlighting the 100 most influential people in artificial intelligence. You can see a handful of them on the front cover there. The list features well-known names in the space, including obviously Elon Musk and OpenAI CEO Sam Altman, scientists, musicians, and even a Japanese author who used AI to produce the first completely AI-illustrated Japanese comic, also made the cut as well. It also featured uh, policymakers, government officials like Omar Al-Omar, um, who became the world's first minister of artificial intelligence in 2017, taking office in the United Arab Emirates. Joining us live now is Times Editor-in-Chief Sam Jacob, Sam, thank you so much for being with us. So just walk us through how exactly you put the list together. Obviously, there are some household names that you've all heard of. I mean, the likes of Sam Altman, Elon Musk, but there are also some surprises uh, on the list as well. Take us through it. Thank you for having me. We're so excited to have the Time 100 AI out in the world today and to be able to share it with you. We have uh, many knowledgeable reporters and editors. They spent months talking to their sources, uh, doing interviews, talking to people throughout the artificial intelligence community to try to build the best picture we can of the people who we believe are shaping perhaps the most important scientific and technological transformation that we've seen in decades. What I thought was interesting is that it was quite um, a diverse list just in terms of, yes, there are, of course, a number of Americans, but there are also a number of sort of scientists and thought leaders from other countries. And I also found it interesting that you used people who were also in the creative sphere as well. So there were writers, there were sort of showrunners. I mean, one of my favorite shows is, is Black Mirror, and the creator of Black Mirror also made the cut as well. 
it, this is an argument. It's an argument about who's shaping AI today, who is being impacted by it, who's having influence. And we think while it's important to recognize the investors, the corporate leaders, the CEOs, the startup founders who are driving transformation forward, we wanted to widen the aperture. We wanted to look beyond the traditional places. And, and like you said, look at the artists, look at the innovators, look at the people who are maybe working at the fringes, because this is a technology that's going to grow and be pushed by the people at the frontiers. Yeah, it also included an 18-year-old who uh, has put together a youth-led movement um, for ethical, sort of pushing for ethical AI. One of the things I also um, just want to get at is why this list is important. When readers open Time magazine and they look through this list, I mean, what is, what do you, what is the goal here, just in terms of what you hope them to gain from uh, understanding who's who in AI? Two things. This is an argument, one, about the importance of AI today. By connecting it with the Time 100, we're trying to elevate a conversation about why this matters. And, and second, I think um, understanding artificial intelligence can be a little bit alienating. It can be dehumanizing. We think about these technologies that are maybe matching or exceeding human ability, all the concerns about existential risk. And what we wanted to do was to privilege the people who are making AI possible, to remind our readers and people around the world that while this technology is moving so quickly and growing at leaps and bounds, there are individuals who are making decisions every day, there are relationships that matter, and there are people on all sides of, of the AI debate whose, whose ideas, vision, their flaws, their insights are shaping what's happening with this technology. So we're providing both a map for people to understand the relationships that matter, when it comes to AI, but we're also providing an argument to say people matter in this conversation and these are the people who matter in the conversation around AI. And are you, do you have sort of an equal number of people who are skeptical and concerned about some of the challenges that AI is going to sort of pose um, as you do people who are really embracing it? Not only is this list an argument, it is a list that is full of argument. And so we have voices. We talked to over 90 people who are on the list of the AI 100. And each of them is making a different case. What's fascinating to me as a reader and an editor is just how, how much change is happening at this moment, how much argument is happening among these people. So we have ethicists and philosophers. We have scientists, academics. We have people who are shaping the debate and whose conversations are shaping how we understand where AI is going. So these are not just boosters or people who are pushing hype. They're people who are thinking really intelligently about what matters. And we're seeing that kind of intelligent debate happening both within the AI industry, within Silicon Valley, but also among all the different institutions, regulators, thinkers who are challenging what AI means today. All right, uh, Sam Jacobs, life us there. Thank you so much, appreciate it. Meantime, staying with AI and Microsoft says suspected Chinese operatives are using images made by artificial intelligence to spread disinformation to American voters ahead of the 2024 U.S. election. From Beijing, Stephen Jiang reports. This latest finding doesn't really come as a surprise to anyone who has been paying attention. Back in February, we reported the discovery of China-based bot accounts planting fake newscasts on Twitter and Facebook using AI-generated avatars to read stories focused on America's shortcomings and flaws while amplifying narratives in line with Beijing's strategic ambitions and goals. Back then, experts told us those videos didn't gain too much traction, but fast forward to this latest finding. The 
the AI technology and AI-generated contents have become a lot more sophisticated, making it even harder for average users to uh, tell the difference between what's real and what's fake. And that's why this time, uh, it seems these contents have generated a lot more engagements from real uh, social media users. Now, that's something, of course, that has been long been warned by U.S. officials and experts, especially in the current U.S. political climate, so divisive and polarizing, making Americans easy prey. Now, the Chinese government has pushed back on the latest allegation, calling this report full of prejudice and, again, as an example of uh, malicious speculation against China. But the matter of fact is, ever since Russia adopted this playbook during the 2016 U.S. elections, U.S. officials really have seen this coming, with the FBI, for example, pointing to both Russian and Chinese state actors getting involved in influence campaigns during the 2022 midterm elections. And just last month, the parent company of Facebook, Meta, actually took down thousands of China-based accounts that the company says are tied to Chinese law enforcement, uh, targeting not just Americans, but also people in Taiwan and elsewhere as uh, part of, quote-unquote, cross-platform covert influence operation. So this case is not, definitely not the last time we're going to be hearing about this uh, with the fast growth of the AI technology and the proliferation of AI-generated contents. The worry, the concern, of course, is uh, uh, this is going to deepen the uh, threats posed by cyber attacks and disinformation campaigns aimed at not only uh, interfering with U.S. democracy, but also stealing U.S. data and infiltrating into American society. Stephen Zhang, CNN, Beijing. Right, coming up after the break, uh, these are live pictures here. Air Force One just landing in New Delhi, where it's gone 7 o'clock in the evening. Uh, any moment now, President Biden going to be stepping off that plane. There's going to be an arrival ceremony, of course. President Biden is in India for the G20 summit. We'll discuss uh, some of his objectives in terms of positioning the U.S. as an economic counterweight to, of course, Russia and China, both of those leaders not attending this year's summit. So much to discuss with uh, our guest after the break. That's next. All right, welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks up and running for the last trading day of the week. A flat open for the major averages after a rough few days on Wall Street. September is truly living up to its reputation as a problematic month for stocks so far. The major averages uh, pressured by stronger than expected economic data that could put another Fed rate hike in play later this year. That means next week's read on U.S. consumer prices will be very important for market sentiment. Add to that weakness in shares of artificial intelligence, uh, chip maker NVIDIA, uh, and also Apple as well, two of the tech's biggest winners this year. Apple trying to move higher in the first few minutes of trade, but shares tumbled more than 3.5% on Wednesday and almost 3% Thursday on concerns that the Chinese government is going to be restricting iPhone usage in that country. So all in all, really a rotten week for Apple, but shares still up over 35% so far this year. All right, turning now to Russia's war on Ukraine. Ukraine says it has started exporting its grain by sending it to ports in Croatia. Officials have been exploring alternative shipping routes after Russia pulled out of a deal in July, allowing Ukrainian exports via the Black Sea. Meantime, Britain says it will discuss ways around Russia's grain blockade at the G20 summit <clears throat> this weekend. Nick Robertson joins us live now. Nick, this is really perfect timing because as we're speaking, President Biden has literally just landed in New Delhi. He's about to get off the plane. When he gets off that plane, we're going to bring everyone live pictures. But just in terms of what we can expect from 
uh, the G20 summit in terms of commitments when it comes to Ukraine. Not all members of G20 are on the same page, as we well know, when it comes to uh, Russia's war with Ukraine. What sort of commitments can we expect coming out of this? Um, lesser, it appears, than came out of the Bali G20 uh, summit last year. And the European Union, uh, when working over a draft of the final agreed statement, um, these things get worked on in advance. And then, of course, the leaders put their signature to it after going over some of the details. Um, the European Union said this doesn't match standards. This, this falls short of what the G7 wants. So there will be uh, not a meeting of minds there, indeed, uh, in Narendra Modi has has not accepted to have President Zelensky come to the G20 because he feels that would be somehow put all the focus on Ukraine. Um, obviously, President Putin not there, uh, President Xi of, of China not there as well. So not perhaps strong commitments. But that's what the British Prime Minister says is going to try to do. Uh, and undoubtedly, this is something President Biden will be part of as well, which is trying to assure many of those others present there, the sort of global, global south, if you will, that, that, the, that it is Ukraine that's losing out, that's Russia that's the aggressor. Richie Sunak says, look, 26, since Russia pulled out of that grain deal in July, they've, they've bombed and damaged 26 different uh, Ukrainian grain facilities. One third of Ukraine's grain storage facility is, has now been... Uh, put off the map. And I think this has become a more pressing issue for Ukraine because we heard when President Erdogan of Turkey met with President Putin at the beginning of the week in Sochi, um, President Putin said, I want some international sanctions, the access to the SWIFT international financial mechanisms roll back before I get back into the grain deal, which is why we're seeing Ukraine saying it's working on this alternative route that, that takes its grain to Croatia to get to Croatian ports. That's down the Danube. It's a bit of a niche route because it's not particularly big, but they're also saying they're going to push ahead with a route down the Black Sea, an independent route, independent of that deal uh, that the UN brokered that involved Russia as well. It goes closer to the coast, it appears, Bulgaria, Romania, coastlines, uh, and that's what may make it attractive. What Richie Sunak, the British Prime Minister, brings to this, he said uh, British intelligence, British um, surveillance will help monitor the whereabouts of Russian ships and also apparently has been talking to the British uh, shipping insurance industry, Lloyds in particular, who've said that they will support the UN and its ongoing efforts to continue to get grain out of Ukraine. The big message here is it's, it's not, as President Putin puts it, that all of the grain or the majority of the grain that comes out of Ukraine goes to Europe. Um, Rishi Sunak said, look, two thirds of the grain before the war that came out of Ukraine was going to uh, developing nations. Uh, 170,000 tons um, of the grain that was shipped out during the war has gone to Yemen and Somalia. So I think there would be a strong push to try to set the record straight on what Ukraine grain does for developing nations and the support perhaps therefore that they feel it should get more broadly at the G20. Yeah, a lot of, we talked about this a second ago, that, mm. that a lot of the countries are not on the same page when it comes to the war in Ukraine, but there are a lot of countries who do want to show that they are on the side of the global south when it comes to this particular issue. Mm. Nick Roberts said we have to leave it there. Thank you so much. We'll have much more news after the break. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. 
Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. As you've heard, there are a couple of notable absentees from this year's G20 summit in India. One of them is, of course, Chinese President Xi Jinping. It's the first time he has missed the annual gathering since taking power in 2012. Joining us now to talk about why Xi is staying away and what it means to the G20, uh, Michael Herson, head of China Research at 22V Research. Michael, thank you so much for being with us. So, uh, I'm not sure if anyone really knows the answer, but just try to sort of shine a light on why President Xi has decided to skip this year's summit. Is it to do with solidarity with to Russia or is it was there more to it than that? It's really not clear. I doubt that this is just about solidarity with Russia. I think there's probably a few factors here. She has a very difficult um, domestic situation, particularly with the economy. Um, China-India tensions are notably high. And of course, um, Delhi is the host of this G20 meeting. And then it is a difficult time right now between China and the US and to some extent China and Europe. So these may all be reasons why Xi Jinping decided not to attend. I think regardless of the reason, um, it is, I think, a vulnerability for China. It does provide President Biden in particular with a much better environment now to project US global leadership uh, at a time when the U.S. is in a rivalry with China for this role. And I just want to sort of remind our viewers uh, and just talk about what we're seeing on camera right now. We're actually seeing President Biden. He stepped off Air Force One. He's now meeting with dignitaries on the tarmac. Of course, he just arrived in New Delhi for the start of the G20 summit. There is going to be an arrival ceremony for him. It's just gone almost a quarter past seven in the evening. I do want to talk about uh, President Biden's relationship with Narendra Modi, the fact that you have Xi Jinping not attending, that is, of course, an opportunity for Narendra Modi. How important is this summit for him, the fact that India is hosting the G20 and India is sort of showcasing itself to the world here? It's quite important for Prime Minister Modi, and he has clearly put a lot of effort into making this G20 summit um, something of a, a coming out party, if you will, for India, um, really as you know something of a global power. Um, the fact that Xi Jinping is not there is a bit of a snub uh, to Prime Minister Modi. It comes as China-India tensions are rising in particular over their border dispute and just their broader rivalry within Asia. Um, but it is going to be a chance for uh, Modi to show a strong relationship with the U.S. in particular. And that meeting between Biden and Modi is going to be, you know, I, I think uh, quite important as another sign of a strengthening U, uh, U.S.-India relationship. And in terms of the U.S. sort of filling a void, if you will, left by um, Xi's absence, we know the U.S. is going to be announcing $200 billion worth of investments for poorer country and things like climate change, education, loans to various countries in the global south. Um, this is sort of seen as a rival to China's Belt and Road Initiative. But when you look at the actual number, it's really only a fraction of the kinds of investments that countries like China provide, for example, African countries and have provided African countries over the course of many years. Just explain to us how exactly the U.S. is positioning itself in terms of filling the void here left by China. Well, you're right. It's 
kind of a drop in the bucket if you look at, if you match it up with China's lending and investment in these countries. But it's still important. It's important that the U.S. show that it is not leaving diplomacy to the global south to China. And China really has focused its diplomatic efforts on the global south um, as its relationship with the U.S., um, Europe, Japan, the advanced economies has worsened. I don't think the U.S. is trying to match China dollar for dollar. It is trying to stress the quality of this assistance being channeled largely through uh, the multilateral development institutions. Um, but it is a steep challenge for the U.S. to match the kind of economic heft that China now has in Africa and other parts of the developing world. All right. Michael Harrison, live for us there. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. All right, there are further concerns from the U.S. over China, this time with Beijing buying up American farmland. Some people getting worried about what the Chinese Communist plan Party plans to do on U.S. soil. David Culver has this story. Just a couple of hours into our drive from Seattle, we start to see the markings of American pride, stars and stripes lining the highways of rural Washington state. This is part of the agricultural backbone that keeps us fed. But as we look closer here, we find what might be for America is, in some cases, not American. This is something we've kind of woken up to and thought we should do something. Dan Newhouse splits his time between Sunnyside, Washington, working as a hops farmer, and the other Washington, where he serves on Congress's recently created select committee on the CCP. I think a lot of folks, congressmen, would look at where we are and say, how does that relate to the committee that focuses on the Chinese Communist Party? Uh, I think there's a huge connection. We've seen a tremendous increase in the number of acres, for instance, being purchased by Chinese businesses. The increase in the investments has grown by a factor of 10 over the last decade. A sharp rise, he worries, will continue. But the one thing that people need to understand is China's not an ally. They're an adversary. Lawmakers on both sides fear that with control of U.S. farmland, China could manipulate U.S. food supply, surveil sensitive military sites, or even steal valuable intellectual property. China's foreign ministry says the U.S. is playing off of unwarranted national security fears to discriminate. We drive about an hour from Sunnyside to see how close the business ties to China are. You're about to see the sign. It's called Syngenta. This is a seed and pesticides manufacturer. It's one of the largest in the world. And let me show you something else as you look from the outside here. Nothing about this suggests that it's foreign owned. In fact, you can even see, look right there. It's an American flag that's flying. Syngenta is headquartered in Switzerland, but owned by ChemChina, which is 100% Chinese state controlled and designated last year by the Defense Department as a military company. Its CEO, a former government official and member of the Chinese Communist Party. Syngenta is operating here legally, and neither it nor its parent company have been accused of wrongdoing. In a statement to CNN, they stress that Syngenta has approximately 4,400 U.S. employees in 43 states, and all its activities are conducted on fields and farms in the U.S. to benefit American farmers. Newhouse is sponsoring a House bill that would heavily vet and restrict future investment from Chinese entities. A similar effort passed the Senate in July, and more than two dozen states have either passed or proposed their own restrictions on foreign ownership of land. They were all family-owned. 
now there's no families left. The restrictions on certain foreign investment could mean fewer options for family farms facing increased financial pressures and needing to sell. Would you be hesitant in selling to any sort of foreign group that's coming in, even if it was, say, a Chinese-owned company? I wouldn't like it, but money's money. If they're the only check that you got, what are you going to do? The legislation could also have wider consequences. One of the biggest counter-arguments is, oh, that's going to lead to xenophobia, right? That's going to create a prejudice. To that, you say... I think we can make that distinction between the Chinese people and the Chinese Communist Party. And we're not looking at uh, trying to create an anti-Chinese sediment in our country. We're just trying to be smart about how we respond to the Communist Chinese. Amidst an increasingly polarized U.S. population, efforts seen as tough on China, particularly leading into the 2024 elections, are among the very few areas in which both Democrats and Republicans find agreement, common ground shared over what they consider to be a common adversary. David Corver, CNN, New York. All right, still to come, auto angst. U.S. car makers and a major union are careening toward a potentially damaging strike. The very latest on the stalled negotiations just ahead. Right here in the U.S., the big three automakers are facing a possible very expensive strike. The United Auto Workers Union, which represents more than 140,000 in the industry, says uh, its members will down tools if there's no deal by the time their contracts expire next week. Vanessa Yarkevich joins us live now with the details. So just give us a sense, Vanessa, I mean, how likely is a strike at this point and what are some of the major sticking points? Well, just yesterday, the union received an offer from General Motors. General Motors offered a 10 percent increase in pay for workers, but that was not good enough for the union. They are asking for a 40 percent pay increase across all three automakers, and they say that is in part to recoup a lot of the concessions that they made in 2009, uh, excuse me, in 2008-2009 uh, during the auto bailout. Now, we have never seen a union, the UAW, strike against all three automakers, but they are not backing down, saying they will in fact do that if they don't get the deal they're looking for. Are you ready to rumble? There's a showdown in Detroit. What do we want? Fair contract! The United Auto Workers Union is less than a week away from a possible strike against the big three U.S. automakers, General Motors, Ford, and Stellantis. Teeing up what would be the second largest U.S. labor strike in a quarter century. UAW says their demands have not been met, waiting nearly a month on new proposals. I'll tell you what I'm going to do with with their proposal. I'm going to file it in its proper place, because that's where it belongs, the trash. Tensions have been high between the two sides. The union, representing 145,000 workers at the three automakers, even filed unfair labor practice complaints against GM and Stellantis, accusing the companies of not bargaining in good faith, which they deny. These negotiations are serious and they matter. The outcome impacts all of us, every team member, and quite frankly, every stakeholder across the country. GM sent a new offer Thursday with higher pay raises. UAW says it doesn't come close and to, quote, stop wasting our members' time. Ford also sent a new offer the UAW is reviewing. The union called their previous proposal an insult. Stellantis says it will have a counter by the end of the week. 
This trash can is overflowing with the bullshit that the big three continue to peddle. For the first time ever, the UAW could strike all three automakers at once. The last strike in 2019 against General Motors cost the company $2.9 billion over six weeks. A strike against all three could mean $5 billion in losses in just 10 days. We uh, respect their process and are hopeful that they are going to grapple through some hard issues and hopefully come to an agreement that's a win-win. To rebuild the backbone of this President Joe Biden and the acting labor secretary have stayed out of negotiations. But Biden appointed trusted White House senior advisor Gene Sperling to keep tabs. Despite talks coming down to the wire, the president said he believes a strike can be avoided. The union has some ambitious demands asking for a 40% pay raise over the course of the four-year contract, restoring cost-of-living increases and pension plans for all workers. They've had our demands from the outset, and we told them we expect to get there uh, by September 14th, and that is September 14th, a deadline, not a reference point. And as the big three pivot to electric vehicles, they're planning 10 new battery plants not under UAW contracts. The union is hoping these next contracts protect their members in the future. Workers can't be left behind in this transition. You're talking about 20 percent of the powertrain workers in the big three that stand to lose their jobs down the road if we go from ICE engines to the battery power. And there's no question that electric vehicles are the future of the auto industry. According to the Economic Policy Institute, if legislators and auto companies here in the U.S. invest in electric vehicles right here in the United States, that could create 150,000 jobs by 2030. However, if jobs are moved abroad and there's not investment from legislators into producing these kinds of vehicles here, that could be a loss of 75,000 workers. And that's what the UAW is concerned about. But Zane, we just heard uh, a week or two ago, the president announced, President Biden announced a $15 billion investment into electric vehicle battery plants to try to retool uh, current auto plants to produce electric vehicles, as well as retraining and rehiring auto workers to work in that capacity. But President Biden, Zane, has a really delicate dance here. He is trying to support the unions. He's a pro-union president. He wants the bargaining process to play out. But at the same time, inflation is still too high here in the U.S. Uh, The public in polling does not really think that the president has a handle on the economy. So at the same time, he does not have any control over these negotiations. He doesn't have the same power that he did, say, in the rail strike. So the president is watching this closely because at the end of the day, he does not want to strike because that could have serious economic impacts for the U.S. economy, something he's really trying to dig his way out of with voters, especially here, Zane. Yeah, one one year until the election. And um, as you pointed out, the poll numbers are not looking favorable for him. So this is the last thing he needs. And as you point out, he doesn't really have the same power as if it was an airline potentially striking or, or rail worker striking. Uh, Vanessa Yarkevich, live for us. Thank you so much. And that is it for the show. Connect the World is up next. You're watching CNN. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.